Hi, this is Dr. Jill Carnahan, and today we'll be mapping diverticulitis on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'm excited to have Dr. Jill Carnahan back to the mic. Known as your functional medicine expert, Dr. Jill Carnahan has been featured in People Magazine, Shape, Parade, Forbes, Mind Body Green, First for Women, Townsend Newsletter, and The Huffington Post, as well as seen on NBC News and health segments with Joan London. She is a prominent global keynote speaker and a prolific writer sharing her knowledge on stage and podcasts. Dr. Jill is the Medical Director of Flatiron Functional Medicine, a widely sought-after practice with a broad range of clinical services including functional medicine protocols, nutritional consultations, chiropractic therapy, naturopathic medicine, acupuncture, and massage therapy that attracts A-list celebrities and athletes. A survivor of breast cancer, Crohn's disease, and mold toxicity, she routinely treats patients who come to her for solutions to their medical mysteries that haven't been solved. She co-authored the Personalized and Precision Integrative Cardiovascular Medicine textbook and is set to release her prescriptive memoir through Forefront Publishing in 2023. Patients and fans alike are encouraged by Dr. Jill's science-backed medical knowledge delivered with authenticity, love, and humor. She is known for inspiring her audience to thrive even in the midst of difficulties. Hi, Dr. Jill. Welcome back to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thanks for having me back, Andrea. I'm so glad we get to talk about diverticulitis today and tap into your unique expertise. And I'm wondering, Dr. Jill, if you can start us out by defining what diverticulitis is. Yeah. So, you know, I love the analogy of like a bicycle tire because our intestines are this tube that runs from mouth to anus and it's like a tire in a way. It's our basically interface with the external environment. And I'm sure you've had lots and lots of discussions on the gut, but what happens in diverticulitis is parts of the gut lining, the tube in our small and large intestine, usually in our more in our large intestine, start to have these bubbles or outpouchings. It's almost like weak spots and then they can protrude. And then this gives little cavities or cubby holes where where bacteria and things, food particles can get stuck. And the downside of that is not just that there's these outpouchings, but if food or debris gets stuck in them, they can get inflamed or infected, and then they cause a lot of pain and complications. So what's causing those pockets or bubbles to occur? Yeah, so there's a lot of evidence that the type of diet that we eat, which is, of course, core foundation of functional medicine is really important here because when there's not a lot of pressure on that wall with a low fiber diet, say you have a high fat, you know, fast food kind of westernized diet, 
you're more likely to have weakness or outpouchings versus a nutritionally dense, high plant-based, high fiber diet where you're going to have the even pressure on that lumen of the tube. And then you're less likely to develop this. There definitely are genetic factors as well. So some people are maybe just more prone to this, like someone with Ehlers-Danlos or a collagen vascular issue would also be potentially more prone to that outpouching. And when we talk about diverticulosis versus diverticulitis, can you help us understand the diverticula? And you're speaking into it now with the physiology, but maybe just dive into it a little bit more because I know that comes up for a lot of folks. What's the difference? Sure. So diverticulosis is just the presence of those outpouchings, but they could go your whole life and you never have issues. A lot of times an incidental finding on an imaging study will say you have diverticulosis, which just means you have those pockets that are occurring. But again, you could go your whole life and never have symptoms. Diverticulitis is the inflammation or infection that happens with those outpouchings. And that can be anything from a minor inconvenience to a medical emergency. So before we talk about symptoms, and I want to go there, you mentioned some of the antecedents, and you also mentioned some triggers related to diet and lifestyle modifications or diet and lifestyle history. What else should we be thinking about in terms of triggers that lead to the symptoms that we'll be discussing? Yeah. So my own personal history with Crohn's is relevant because patients with Crohn's or colitis or some inflammatory bowel condition would be a little bit more predisposed to having issues with their bowel and things like this to occur. But other factors in the research are too little or not enough fiber. Like we mentioned that you want that bulk that's actually going through the lumen and giving structure to the tube. Chronic constipation. So if someone's straining a lot, that can contribute to the development of diverticulosis. Like I said, there are genetics that play into this. So some people may be doing all the right things and still develop some issues. Age, as we age, there's more likelihood that we'll develop this. Obesity and sedentary lifestyle. So our weight affects this. And I really believe this is a whole nother topic, but there is a direct correlation with lipopolysaccharides, the coatings of bacteria and endotoxemia when those coatings cross over from a leaky gut into the bloodstream that create obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. So I think that obesity relation may not be just purely weight, but maybe the inflammatory correlation with LPS endotoxemia. And then things like smoking can be a risk, medications like steroids, opioids, and NSAIDs. And then dysbiosis, which is such a favorite topic of all of us in functional medicine, when you have abnormal growth of, say, Klebsiella or Provotella or some of these bacteria or fungal components, and then immune system issues or connective tissue issues, like I mentioned before. Wow. Lots to consider there that could lead to this then as a downstream effect. It really is what I like to call a branch, right? It's not necessarily one of the roots, but when we experience this branch, what kind of symptoms are people experiencing? You mentioned that it could be undetected. We don't even know that it's there to being a medical emergency. So if we tick around the central part of the matrix, what are we going to hear or see from our clients and patients? Yeah, so it could be you have a mild right upper quadrant or left lower quadrant. It's often lower quadrant, so I'd say it's more likely right or left to lower quadrant, but it could be really anywhere in the abdomen where you have a little bit of achiness or just, you know, a distension, bloating, and it could be that mild and it kind of goes away on its own and resolves, and that clearly doesn't need a lot of treatment. 
the more serious consequences can be severe abdominal pain, tenderness, nausea, intractable nausea, where someone can't stop vomiting, even obstruction or fistula, which is like when there's a pathway between some other organ and the bowel and you're actually, the bowel contents are leaking into the peritoneum. Abscess that ruptures would be one of the worst case scenarios because then all the bowel contents goes into the peritoneum and that can create sepsis or literally, I mean, it's a life-threatening emergency if the bowel ruptures. So it's anything from a small discomfort to a very serious emergency situation if the bowel would rupture. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, we're looking at a number of other GI issues and immune issues that could come from the presence of the diverticula and the inflammation that's occurring there. Yes, absolutely. And I love that we talked briefly about dysbiosis because, of course, all of us in functional medicine really deal with the gut, the microbiome. And I believe there's probably a lot more to do with the constitution of the microbiome and whether it's pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. And if it's in a good balance and you're taking good probiotics, we don't have like a list of literature or studies that say probiotics specifically prevent this, but because they modulate the gut immune system and the strength and integrity of cells and cell linings and the pterocytes, and then they also can regulate inflammatory processes, I would suspect that we could see correlations with the microbiome contents and residents and this as well. I love that you're talking about correlations versus causations, because this is one of the superpowers I think we have in functional medicine to really look at the terrain and to make associations and connect the dots while doing no harm, of course. But it sounds like you're bringing that approach and those associations to your assessment of diverticulitis. Do I have that right? Absolutely. And I love that you said that because really, I think the cutting edge things that we're discovering 30 years of research gives a standard of care, but it's we're 30 years behind the game. And when we want to deal with real life problems, like the recent pandemic, you know, what do we do with long COVID? We have to really be thinking outside the box because in 20 years, we might have all the data, but right now we have some data and often we make educated guesses with least risk to patients. So bottom line, what does that mean? I would say things like we know spore probiotics can increase diversity and diversity is such a resilience factor with the gut and immune system. So I am guessing that spore types of probiotics could be incredibly helpful. That's what I would prescribe. And then immune modulating things like bovine immune globulins or a colostrum could also be helpful in this case, because what happens in the transition from diverticulosis, which is just those out pockets to diverticulitis is a revved up immune system when there's inflammation and infection. Yeah. And all the things that you're talking about are doing no harm, right? If we're watching and we're paying attention and we're tracking with each and every patient and we're dosing correctly and starting low and going slow, we're going to help other things that they're experiencing, even if there isn't a direct effect, but how can there not be because those diverticula exist in a terrain that's contributing to them? Absolutely. And one other thing that comes to mind that I've been really excited about recently with, again, back to long COVID and some of the things that we're seeing, which again, in our world, this is nothing new, a long-term right. viral reactivation. <laughs> no. immune. It's like, duh, we've been dealing with this in other forms like EBV reactivation. And so it's not new, but one of the things I've really liked, like I mentioned already, bovine immune globulins, colostrum, all contain immune elements that help to calm 
over-inflammatory immune system, but also take away pathogens. They can passively bind to pathogens. So in my mind, that makes a lot of sense. And there's no harm because those immunoglobulins have been shown to bind to H. pylori and Klebsiella and Clostridia and all kinds of things. And then the other one I was going to mention is butyrate. So some form of calcium, magnesium butyrate or sodium potassium butyrate butyric acid is incredibly powerful as a short-chain fatty acid to modulate immune and inflammation in the gut. Great. We will link to podcasts that I have with Dr. Martin Singh on colostrum and Dr. Michael Ash on short-chain fatty acids. Lots to start really connecting the dots in what you're talking about, which is really exciting. Let's get into the right side of the matrix, which I like to think of as the skill. What do we do? What should we be paying attention to? What are we overlooking when it comes to our recommendations and treatments regarding diverticulitis? I mm, love this because obviously the gut-brain connection is getting more and more uh, traction. And we've, again, in this field known it's so connected, but vagus nerve is one of the things that helps peristaltic waves and the normal motility of the bowel. It helps prevent things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or fungal overgrowth or dysbiosis. And so I really believe that one of the things that we've neglected for a long time in conventional medicine is thinking about how things like meditation, appropriate sleep, stress reduction techniques, even like visceral massage or visceral manipulation, which is a type of physical therapy or a massage therapy that includes the bowel could be incredibly powerful and outside of the realm of a probiotic or another pill. I love that. I love that there's stuff we can do and we can do for ourselves too. I mean, this is something that I'm really trying to bring forward in my work, Dr. Jill, is that we can be better partners as patients, right? There's a lot of stuff we can do that isn't just diet and dietary because that could be triggering or hard for folks. There's things we can do to support ourselves. And even that manual manipulation, great if you could go to somebody, but there's stuff we can be doing for ourselves. Vagal nerve stimulation also will link to more resources and podcasts on that. How do we think about the diet if we're going there? You talked about fiber, short chain fatty acids, elimination of processed foods. What else should we be thinking about? Yeah. So here's where fiber really does make such an impact because you're getting that integrity of basically the bowel needs to move against something. And if there's no fiber in that GI tract, it actually surprisingly gets weaker. So you need a stool that's bulk forming. And that would be, again, soluble, insoluble fibers, foods that are like artichoke, Jerusalem artichoke, and some of the onion and garlic and all these things that have lots of fiber in them. And even though I see all ends of the spectrum with meat eaters or vegetarians and everything in between, <laughs> I still think that a plant-based diet, meaning that a lot of our food is still from plants, is the best for all humans. And that would be most of our fiber sources. Yeah. We like to think of it as plant powered. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. What are we missing? What else are we missing in this conversation in this masterclass that you're bringing us into in how to think about diverticulitis? What have we not discussed that you feel is really critical that all clinicians know about supporting their clients and patients? Yeah, so two things come to mind in this that you might not think about with diverticulosis or litis, and that would be mold and trauma. And I'll talk about them really quick. Number one, mold. Mold has a massively toxic effect on the gut, and people don't realize how toxic it is. It's probably one of the number one inducers of 
intestinal permeability or leaky gut, also in dysbiosis because it affects the immune system. And I've just been researching for another presentation showing how mycotoxins can be transformed by the microbiome into much more toxic metabolites and actually cause more toxic things in the gut just by their interaction with the microbiome. So mold. And then number two, trauma. We know that there's study after study that shows abdominal pain. There's many physiological causes, and we often find those in the things we're looking at. But underlying childhood trauma or abuse or those kinds of things in our past, if we haven't dealt with those, they can present with some pretty significant physical symptoms like abdominal pain as well. And so just, again, encouraging you to go work with a practitioner to deal with those kinds of things. And often those physical symptoms will resolve as well. Dr. Jill, so beautiful, so amazing. I love how you can get to the point succinctly, but with the complexity that the human body demands of us and our attention. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. You're welcome. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks go out to Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, Sandra Brower, Evan Hollingsworth, Heidi Kaufman-Lakowitz, and Rowan Bradley for their support making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.